Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Glenn Zielinski about the role of the vestibular system in TBI. Faces of TBI is a podcast series for survivors by survivors raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. I also launched the Brain Health Magazine, and you can grab your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and catch previous episodes of the podcast at facesoftbi.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Velmer. And don't forget to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other caregivers, survivors, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Dr. Glenn Zielinski, and he is a chiropractic physician and board-certified functional neurologist. He received his doctorate in chiropractic from Parker University in Dallas, Texas. He completed his neurology training with the Carrick Institute for Clinical Neuroscience and became certified by the American Chiropractic Neurology Board in 2003. Dr. Zielinski founded Northwest Functional Neurology in Lake Oswego, Oregon in 2006. His practice focuses on severe traumatic brain injuries, post-concussion syndrome, movement disorder, disorders of gait and balance, and disorders of childhood neurological development. Patients travel from all over the world to have Dr. Zielinski attend to their care. He has helped celebrities, entertainers, musicians, professional athletes, and world champions recover from neurological injuries and maximize their performance. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zielinski. So thrilled to have you here today. Hey, thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so um, we'll just preface our listeners that you live in a cell phone dead zone. So if we have any difficulties, uh, <laughs> they know what's going on with that. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, if I if I go blank, it's probably because Amy just hit the mute button for all the profanity. Yeah, you know, I'll just mute you out. <laughs> so, Dr. Zelensky, I would love to start by asking you how you came to work in the brain injury community. What brought you here? Um, well, I'd say that that actually started before I even went to anything to do with um, school associated with any of this. Um, I'm a father of twins, and one of and when my children were born, my son suffered a hypoxic brain injury, and that basically set me down this path where once you get on it, you can't get back off. So I've been basically in this game for as long as I can remember. My kids are about to turn 25 in a couple of weeks, and my son, who was extremely low functional, is just managing to graduate college. He's got a job. He's a black belt, all these things that... No one assumed he'd ever have any capacity to do, and I credit that entirely to the functional neurology discipline. So needless to say, you get into it, you get in with both feet. <laughs> At least yeah. you have that. Yeah, kind of you know, 
And that is kind of the recurring theme to most of my interviews, because I, I always like to start with that question, because um, everybody has really interesting backgrounds, how they came to work in this realm. And a lot sure. of times it's personal. And sometimes they just happened into it, right? They just fell into it. Um, but I always think it's, it's interesting think- to hear. Certainly. I would think that in most cases, the, the people that are the most into this are people that came here through some sort of a personal connection. Because, I, mean, mm-hmm. I mean, TBI is such an invisible injury, and most people have no mm-hmm. idea what it means, no clue what to do yeah. about it. And it takes, a pre- it takes a considerable amount of effort and energy and, and dedication to research this and get to the point mm-hmm. where you can re- even realistically do anything about it. So everyone that I know that's way into this, they all have a family member or, or personal history or something along those lines. Yeah. And yeah. And well, well, they should. Yeah. And, you know, just in my experience, the, the doctors I have met who have been through one themselves um, tend to have the most compassion and understanding as well. Um, so, you know, brain injury, yeah, unless you've been through it, whether you're the survivor or the caregiver, you know, it's really hard to really grasp it. So I'm very thankful Absolutely. for functional neurology and all of you amazing doctors. And I wish there was like quadruple the number of you guys out there. <laughs> well, we're trying. All over the we're world, too. Yeah, so I've actually made it one of my focuses. Sorry, I was just saying I've made it one of my focuses to try to push through legislation, the opportunity to bring our work to more people. Um, mm-hmm. I managed to get functional neurology hard-coded in our scope of practice in Oregon, and I testify in the Senate all the time for return-to-play legislation and stuff like that. So we're, we're gradually building some awareness. And That's awesome. And if your awesome. awareness increases, more people jump in, and we can mm-hmm. help more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome, and thank you for doing that work. Um So today we're talking about the role of the vestibular system in TBI. And I know for me, vestibular system was something I had never heard of. And, you know, I I understand it now through years of of learning about it, Um, but I had never heard of it. I had no idea how important it was (laughs) and how it can get affected by a TBI. Um, So I'm really excited to jump into this topic today with you. Um, And I guess, where would you like to start uh, with maybe, maybe just defining what the vestibular system is? Sure thing. Um, So your vestibular system essentially is your inner ear and some central pathways that receive projections from your inner ear. So aspects of the cerebellum and the brainstem, by some definitions, can be considered part of the vestibular system. Uh, There's projections that go from there higher up into your brain, into your insular cortex, and your parietal lobe, and and associated pathways. And this could become very technical really quickly, so I'm going to do my best to not make it go there, just so that people have an understanding of what we're actually talking about. The best way to think about what your vestibular system does is – it maps where your head is in relation to gravity and how your head is moving in relation to gravity and in relation to your body. Now, you can think about brain function a number of different ways. And people have all sorts of different classification systems and schemes and things like that. But the one that I tend to go with is to try to think about brain function in terms of primary and secondary and tertiary function. So Tertiary function, that's all the really, really high-level stuff. That's, that's executive function. That's attention and focus and personality and thinking. That's the level that most people consciously live at. People, you know, when they think of where's their brain, where are they in relation to their brain, they're localizing their consciousness in their tertiary cortex for the most part. 
drop down a layer you get or a level i should say you get into some of the, the secondary pathways they're more about things like emotional regulation and memory and things along those lines but when you get to the primary stuff the primary pathways are the ones like they're, they're primary because they're primary to survival and your primary pathways are largely all about your ability to localize yourself in the world all right because if you can't make sense out of where you are in the environment you can't respond to the environment appropriately and so those primary pathways are mostly about visual inputs, about proprioceptive feedback, and proprioception is like basically stress receptors and muscles and joints, and then your vestibular system. So, and, and those three systems, they need to work together to help create a coherent picture of where you are in reality at all times. Because the bottom line is that if you can't make sense out of where you are in the world, not only does the world become a very scary place, but it also becomes very, very difficult for anybody to be able to coordinate in the world. Now, your vestibular system has two main receptor systems. So we're talking about stuff that lives inside your inner ear, all right? And if you want to know where it is, I mean, feel behind your ear, you get that bump, that big, that big um, chunk of bone that's called your mastoid, just deep to that, that's where your vestibular system lives. And the whole thing's really, really small. Like everything that I'm about to describe, we're talking about things that are about the size of, you know, the tip of your thumb in total. Now, your vestibular system has, like I said, two main receptor systems to it. There are these systems called canals, and then there's these systems called otoliths. And otoliths tell you about where gravity is. They tell you about where up and down are, are located. They tell you about translation, so moving forward and back and side and side. And, and they tell you about the role plane, tilting your head. And then you've got canals, and canals tell you about angular head movement. So they tell you about what happens if you move your head forward, right, or back, left. What happens if you turn your head left or right? What happens if you move your head back, right, or forward, left? And both of those systems, they give you part of but not the entire picture of where your head is and how it's moving. Because you have to take that input and put that input together to create a coherent vestibular picture. And then you have to take that input and put that together with feedback that comes from muscles and joints. And those can be everything from your ankles up to your neck. And there's a ton of reflexes that go between your inner ear and your neck. And then you have to take those pictures, which give you the opportunity to make sense out of where your body is in relation to gravity, how your body's moving in relation to gravity, how your head's moving in relation to gravity. And you would like to think that that's enough, but it's not because what we really need to be able to do is take that and integrate that information with where we are in the world. And we get our world, for the most part, from visual inputs. So there's this incredibly complex interplay between pathways that come from your inner ear and from your eyes and from your neck and so on and so forth. And ultimately, it all comes down to basically maps, right? Um, I know that you've had several people in, on your podcast over the last little while, some friends of mine, some interns of mine. I know that every one of them have been talking about maps. And maps are basically how they're basically unconscious sort of coordinate systems that your brain uses to figure out where your hand is in relation to the rest of your body or where your inner ear is in relation to gravity or where your eyes are in relation to your head and so on and so forth. And all of these different maps need to say more or less the same thing. Now, one of the biggest problems with a traumatic brain injury is that the areas where you initially start putting these maps together, the areas where you first start making your eyes work with your inner ear and you first start making your inner ear work with your neck and so on and so forth, those are areas in your brainstem that take an incredible amount of torque when somebody has a rotational hit. And the unfortunate consequence of that is that you get yourself into a situation where your eyes and inner ear are saying slightly different things about where you are in space. 
and the systems that you use to make them integrate get directly damaged. All the little interneuronal pathways that allow the, the initial inputs from your eyes to talk to the initial inputs from your inner ear, they live in areas of the brainstem that, take, that just get scrambled when somebody has a rotational hit. So now you walk out with what they like to call a sensory mismatch. And the problem with the sensory mismatch is that as your eyes and inner ear are saying different things about where you are in the world, your brain has to work incredibly hard to try to make your eyes and inner ear say the same thing. And that's, that's a resource demanding process. So if you're, so think of it like this, right? Brain functions mostly about blood flow. Uh, you do a functional MRI test. You put somebody's head in a tube. They give you a task. And what they're looking for when they say, okay, that area right there just lit up, that's involved in, in that particular task. What they're saying is where did the blood flow go? Now, when blood flow increases in one area, it has a tendency to decrease somewhere else. And when you're in a situation where you've got a big, big problem with your eyes and inner ears saying different things about where you are in the world, try doing something as simple as thinking or solving a mental problem or, or going into a complicated sensory environment. That provokes <laughs> or dialing problem. a phone number. <laughs> or dialing a phone number, sure. Or scrolling on a screen, one of my personal favorite litmus tests. You, yes. know? you take all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, you put those pathways together, and you're asking your frontal lobe, you're asking your tertiary high-level pathways to do more with less resources because some of that blood flow is being shut down and, and your brain's shoving all these resources down into your lower brain stem. And if in the process of, you know, you trying to think or you trying to go to the grocery store or whatever, you have, you know, a panic attack or you, or you develop a severe migraine or whatever, in those circumstances, your brain doesn't care. It's just trying to make sure that you don't fall down, right? Because it's trying yes. to promote survivability. And I'm, I'm going to stop so, you there because you, you sure. just made like a really good point. Your brain is ultimately trying to figure out where you are and keep you upright. And, Absolutely. you know, so many of us, you know, we might feel like we're swaying or we walk into door jams, even though we thought we had, you know, enough room, um, the dizziness, the startle syndrome, um, like when you hear a noise and it really makes you jump, um, all those things track back to what you've just talked about. And so Absolutely. that's, you know, I, I feel like ultimately all this stuff adds up to anxiety, right? Because you don't understand what the heck is going on with your brain and your body. And so you start having anxiety and all your brain cares about is keeping you from falling, Sure. Is that That's absolutely accurate. simplified enough? And, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we don't want to say all of it, but, but certainly a whole ton of what your brain's concerned with is figuring out that, you know, where you are in the world so you don't get mutilated by it, basically, so you don't fall. Now, the th- anxiety is a really interesting point because a lot of the inputs that come from your vestibular system, in fact, I'd, I'd like to address that two ways. The first thing is we talked about how you have all these different maps, right? So you've got a visual map. You've got what they call a proprioceptive map. There's a vascular map. I, I think Nick Kaiser was probably talking about that as dysautonomia one. Um, but the vestibular map, at least from my perspective, is probably the most important map. And that, that's probably why most of our successful therapies, one way or another, involve some sort of vestibular rehabilitation. And, and there's a reason for that. Your vestibular map is the only map that you have of the environment that can give you an accurate set of X, Y, Z coordinates about where your body is in relation to the world. 
So it's like that's your foundation. Your vestibular map is quite literally your foundational pathway. And every other map that you have, you have to use that and marry that on top of your vestibular map so that these systems start talking to each other, which is a complicated way of saying you can know where the visual world is, but if it doesn't match what your inner ear is saying, you don't know where the visual world is, right? And you can know where your neck is in relation to your feet, but if your inner ear is saying something different, your brain's going to start firing reflexes that are largely governed by what's happening from your inner ear. So perfect example for that, people talk about headaches all the time, post-concussive headaches, yeah. right? The post-traumatic stuff that, that everybody's always, you know, doing perpetual therapy on and getting injections and doing, in many cases, you know, surgical releases and prolotherapy and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, we see people constantly in our office that have gone through, you know, years of these sorts of headaches. And the problem isn't even that they have a neck injury at this point. And that's not to say that they didn't start with a neck injury. The problem is that people get stuck with this conceptual schema of your neck is the problem, whereas your neck can be a consequence. So just think of it like this, right? If your eyes and inner ear are saying different things about where you are in space, your brain is a reflex is always trying to find some place to put your head where they more or less match because that's your best opportunity to make sense of the world and, and interact with it. And it usually does this by creating these little head tilts and head rolls. So mm -hmm. like you're, so the, the classic thing that you see with people that have had TBIs all the time is that they're in, their head's tilting in one direction and it's turned slightly in the other direction. Right? We see I that just constantly. straightened my head. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay. I so, always sit here with a head tilt. Guilty. <laughs> sure. Right. Okay. So, well, I'll, I'll dig a little deeper into what that means in a second. I don't, I don't want to ignore this anxiety thing because it all goes to that same place, and that's a, a critical point to make. But so when you look at these head tilts, I mean, if that causes this great big pile of muscle contraction at the base of your skull, you can start having referred pain headaches. And the classic, so pain referral is like you have a heart attack, pain goes down your arm, even though there's nothing wrong with your arm. It's just that you're getting a whole ton of neurologic input into an area of your spinal cord or brainstem, and it's too much pain input, and it spills over into other areas. And that kind of referred pain comes from the upper cervical spine, from the stuff right at the base of your skull all the time. And the classic periorbital referral is like all that pain behind your eye where you feel like your eye is going to bug out of your head, or that stuff right on top of, your, uh, top of your eyebrow, or the stuff on the side of your head and your temporalis muscle and things like that. And, and people will go and, and poke around on your neck and go, wow, is that sore? Well, yeah, of course it is. And then in comes the therapy train of from a physical therapist, let's do some exercises to fix that. If I'm a manual therapist, let's do some myofascial release. If I'm a chiropractor, let's adjust it. If I'm a, you know, a, a sports medicine guy, I'll inject it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet what's happening is that, that muscle tone keeps coming back because your brain needs it. Your brain is creating that tone as a reflex so that it can find some place to put your head where your eyes and inner ear more or less match. And if you take that away, you might take the pain away, but in the process, you also just took your brain's compensation away. And now you, rain, you walk out of that, that visit feeling a little bit better in your neck and in the big picture worse because you, you just yeah. lost some capacity to make sense out of where you are in the world. And that's one of the biggest problems with TBI because I'm not saying that anybody that's out there that, that engages in any of those other therapies is doing something that's wrong. They're not. I mean, I'm saying they're doing that kind of stuff probably at the wrong time because what needs to happen first is a thorough, proper evaluation of your vestibular system. And then you need to be able to take that and, and create an action plan that allows you to get your inner ear back on the same page as everything else. 
and you do that sort of rehab first, most of the time all that next stuff just goes away. So we see people all the time that have been, you know, dealing with the perpetual 24-7 headaches for years, and they come in, they spend a few days with us, and they leave, and it's gone. I know I mean, mm-hmm. it's not the case all the time, but, but very commonly that's what we will. I mean, that if we don't get those results, we're usually pretty annoyed with ourselves because that's what we expect at this point. So doing things like that, um, they're really important. You need to understand exactly what your vestibular system is doing. Now, let's, let's dig just a little bit deeper on that, right? There's Because this, this can illustrate how your vestibular system can play a really critical role in things like vision therapy as well. So there's, now this gets slightly technical, so, so cut me off if this is just getting out of control. <laughs> but there's, which I'm cool with, there's a reflex called an ocular tilt reaction, okay? And the idea of an ocular tilt is that if you want to be able to see properly, okay, you need to keep your eyes level with the ground and you need to keep your eyes perpendicular to the ground. Now, as soon as you tilt your head, that's obviously not happening, right? If you tilt your head to the right, your right eye is now lower than your left eye, and, and the superior pole of your eyes are both pointing up and to the right. And that doesn't work because that creates a mismatch between your eyes and your inner ear. So we've got these ocular tilt reactions built into our brainstem and cerebellum and vestibular nuclei. And what happens is that when you tilt your head to one side, your brain perceives an increased level of firing of an otolith reflex on that side. So otoliths are receptors that tell you, among other things, about roll and tilt, right? So if you roll your head to the side, an otolith on one side is firing higher than the other side. Those two systems are in a shoving match. So the one on the right suppresses the one on the left. Your brain perceives that input and says, I must be tilting my head to the right. I better raise my right eye and roll my eyes to the left so that they're perpendicular again. That's the normal reaction, okay? Now, and, and, and we all do that. We all do that all the time. And this is one of the most commonly screwed up reflexes in TBIs. And, and for my money, fixing this reflex has probably paid more clinical dividends for my patient base than anything else that I could think of, other than potentially just fixing eye movements with saccades. So the idea of this reflex is that the area of the brain stem, the, uh, the pons and the medulla, where all that input initially goes, and the midbrain, that's the area that takes all the torque when somebody has a rotational hit. So imagine your brain's like a big cauliflower, right? And you're holding onto the stalk of the cauliflower. That's, or that's your brainstem. Snap it around really quickly. All that rotational force goes right where you're holding. And in the process of doing that, you shred up pathways. And you can create a situation where the areas where the otoliths project on the right side, for example, aren't working as well as they're supposed to. So your head's tilting to the right because of the neck injury, but your inner ear is perceiving that the left otolith is firing higher. And now it's like, oh, I better raise the left ear or the, the left eye, I should say, and roll the eyes to the right. So it does the exact opposite of what's necessary. And that mm-hmm. creates a pathologic ocular tilt reaction, which is a disaster for people. And you can usually tell really, really quickly if somebody's got one of those things just by, by looking at them. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a whole lot of, of experience. Just it just takes understanding. All you have to do is just look at somebody and go, hey, man, your head's tilted to the right. and Your left eye sticking up a little higher than the right one. That's not good. Your yep. brainstem has been rocked. Right. Yep. And, and you see a reaction. And that's like an that, easy thing for people listening to look in their mirror. And I mean, absolutely. I didn't I didn't realize actually the first person that noticed my head tilt was my eye doctor. And she knew I was compensating, but she didn't, you know, know how to help me. Um, And when I looked in the mirror, I was like, oh, yeah, it is tipped. Like, 
to me, it felt mm-hmm. like it was on straight, but it wasn't. It was definitely tilt, well, that, tilted. Right, and, th- and that's the problem because there's this other concept of what's called the subjective visual vertical, which is another odorless mediated reflex. And that's basically just on an unconscious level. Where does your brain think visually up and visually down are, right? And mm-hmm. those pathways get screwed up all the time when people have o- ocular tilt reactions or, or pathologic ocular tilts, I should say. And the consequence of that is that your brain always feels like it's moving your head into neutral. So just think if your brain is, is tipping your head one way and it's doing that by contracting all these muscles and cr- contracting all those muscles is creating a headache and stuff like that. Well, you can go off and take away the, neck, the, the pain in the neck by you know, fixing the muscle spasm. But you just also took away your brain's ability to figure out where vertical is. And now, and now you're in just a world of hurt, right? And you, you take a situation like that, and then you take that person and put them in a sensory mismatch circumstance. And what's a sensory mismatch? A, a, a situation where you can get overwhelmed by having to resolve lots and lots of visual and vestibular and proprioceptive input. So what am I talking about? Go and sit in front of a screen and scroll, right? Or worse, go to a grocery store. I mean, everybody with a TBI knows that Costco is like a whole other level of hell. <laughs> yep. you know, or like Dante level 12, right? And what's that about? <laughs> you're, you're, moving through a, you're moving through a visual environment. You have to be perpetually kicking your eyes from target to target to target to target to target. Uh, there's all this visual chaos going on in the background with all the crowd moving around. that makes it impossible for you to use any other reflexes to make sense. And now you're just stuck with your mismatch. And your inner ear is saying something completely different than your eyes are saying. And then what winds up happening? You can't localize where you are in the world. And if you can't make sense out of where you are in the world, the world becomes terrifying. So you spoke about um, anxiety, right? I mean, we treat people with, with post-traumatic PTSD in my clinic all the time. One, one of the things that's probably a little bit different from my practice versus most of the other functional neurology practices is that we have a very, very heavy neuropsychiatric focus. I, I mean, we've got, you know, uh, spectacular neuropsychiatric providers. Um, we've got, you know, all this really cool technology like transcranial magnetic stimulation and stuff like that. And we, we pay very, very close attention to these systems. And we've been able to find, and this is actually published in the functional neurology literature, that by doing this appropriate targeted vestibular rehab, which as, as part of a functional neurology protocol, which basically just means helping people map out where they are in the environment, the results against PTSD outperform pretty dramatically all of the gold standard PTSD therapies. And the great thing about that, that research is that it demonstrates that the worse the case, the bigger the change. So when people have got mild PTSD, vestibular stuff may or may not help, but when people have got severe PTSD, doing appropriate vestibular rehabilitation can make a massive change. Mm-hmm. And we see that all day long, right? I mean, like we, we probably have in our practice, probably 40% of them are, are not just there for TBIs. They're there for TBIs and PTSD or TBIs and chronic severe depression and so on and so yeah. forth, right? And, and yeah. And, I mean, I could map out neuron for neuron if you want how that works, but nobody wants that. God knows I don't. <laughs> yeah, you know, and for me, my anxiety really ramped up about mm, 10 months into my recovery. I mean, I had zero treatment. And, you know, I felt like all my symptoms were getting worse, nothing was getting better. And doctors just kept telling me, Oh, give it more time. Um, sure. And after doing my 
intensive, uh, functional neurology intensive, um, I mean, my anxiety really melted away and I Mm -hmm. rarely have issues anymore. And where I would get a lot of anxiety was like a shopping mall, a grocery store, going out to eat, all those environments Mm -hmm. where you have way too much sensory stimulation and, you know, your brain's trying to figure out things to pay attention to. Right. And, um, you know, having that anxiety go away was huge in my recovery because I think it opened up energy for me to actually heal myself. If, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And, and the energy metaphor makes a lot of sense when you just consider that when you're in a situation where you've got these massive mismatches, I mean, you can go and hang out in a dark room where there's no sensory input and probably be fine and be able to think entirely well. And, and like, this is something that we see all the time where people walk into our offices and they think they have these massive frontal lobe injuries because they can't think, mm-hmm. they can't focus, they can't attend, they can't regulate their emotions, all that sort of stuff. All, and then they go on the Google and they see those are all frontal lobe symptoms. And they freak out. <laughs> yep. um, Dr. Google. And, and, Right. And it's like, I'm never coming back from this. My frontal lobe is destroyed. Right. One of the, one of the first things that I do with all of my patients is very precisely quantify and map all of that stuff out and then sit down with them and go, here's the state of your frontal lobe, because almost inevitably we find that it's nowhere near as bad as they think it is. And what's really happening in most cases, especially with these brainstem level injuries is that their frontal lobe is just working incredibly hard to compensate for all the brainstem level craziness, right? I mean, if your inner ear and and eyes and everything else, they're all on totally different pages. Your frontal lobe is designed to send resources down there again, to make sure that you don't fall. Right. But the problem with that is that everything else that your frontal lobe is supposed to be able to do, which is help you think and focus and concentrate and regulate your emotions and all that stuff, it goes out the window. So a big part of this, in fact, the initial major part of this, and I think this speaks to the results that you got with your first lab is that as you fix those mismatches, you free up resources for your frontal lobe to be able yes. to do more, right? Yes. And the energy becomes, starts coming back, right? And fatigability improves and so on and so forth. And that's a big part of it. There's, there's certainly more to it than that. I mean, you can't just look at a major psychiatric shift and that's, you know, when people have like had their lives totally tipped over and, and so on and so forth and expect that you can just rehab the pathways and make it normal again and everything's going to be fine. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. There's a lot of people that, you know, we'll see somebody at the end of a week and they'll, they'll, you know, quantify the results and go, wow, I did fantastically well and I feel completely normal now and it's great. And then you check in on them like three months later and their, their data is taking a dive again. And, and a lot of that just comes down to the fact that when you've gone through a profound process like this, people have a tendency to start rewriting their stories right? Your whole concept of who you are, what you're capable of accomplishing, your whole internal schema of who you are as a person goes out the window and you start questioning whether or not you're ever going to get back to who you were. And you can go from being Amy to being damaged Amy, right? And when somebody Mm -hmm. brings you back and gets all your pathways working again appropriately and so on and so forth, and then you get, and then you go for your first little ride to the grocery store and things start getting a little weird. The classic thing that happens is that everybody starts catastrophizing. Right. And you, you go from, oh, no, I'm, I'm ruined. And, you know, my symptoms came back. This didn't work. And then spiral, spiral, spiral. And I'm going to you know die alone and I'm loved or whatever. In sort of horrible <laughs> phobia. Right. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but, but people. But, but so, I, I mean, I make it really clear with all my patients. Listen, when you have that first little tip, 
it's not an opportunity to catastrophize. It's a data point. And what we have to do is look at that data point from the perspective of what were you doing? What had you just yeah. done until that happened? What was, this, what was the sensory environment? And that shows us what we need to fix. And when they walk out with that, they're like, this is great. And then, then they stop yeah. being terrified of all these circumstances. And they start looking for opportunities to challenge themselves so that we can figure out what we need to tweak. And then at the same time, there's still components of this that are just inevitably going to be about, about um, just overall anxiety and panic and stuff like that as people remap their psychological strategies. And you can't ignore the psychological strategies. They need to be addressed. And that's where therapy comes in. And, you know, CBT and stuff like that can be really helpful. Um, but you, you have to dig even deeper than that. I mean, like, you know, we take this big functional psychiatry approach in our office. We look at genetics. We look at me- me- metabolic factors and neurotransmitter factors and inflammatory change. And all these other things that have the ability to mess with those systems. But still, for my money, the primary system that has to be addressed if you want to turn off somebody's TBI-related anxiety is getting their vestibular system to help them know where the world is and where they are in relation to it. That's, that's literally yeah. ground zero as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, I, I know so many people who go, like, to just vision therapy, and they feel a little bit better, but they're still stuck, right? Right, and right. I I try to explain, you know, functional neurology is looking at the entire system, not just the eyes. I mean, the eyes are a huge part of it, but it's not the complete whole of it. Well, absolutely, right? So, but, and, and again, I, I love vision therapists. I work really closely with a whole lot of vision therapists. I work with people who teach vision therapy and stuff like that. I think vision therapy is a magnificent modality. Um, the, the, it has to be applied at the right time. And from my perspective, it should be applied after somebody's gone through a functional neurology protocol rather than before. Because actually when somebody goes through a big pile of vision therapy, you know, a big exhaustive program, a lot of times what they do is just sort of rehab away our indicators and make it harder for us to fix them. But um, to go back to that ocular tilt example that I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, that's what I was just going to mention. If you have a head right. tilt. <laughs> so, well, sure. So here's, here's the thing, right? So people get into situations where, Say one eye is tracking up and down properly, and then the other eye, when you look up, it rolls to the right, and when you look down, it rolls to the left, right? So you've got what's called a, you know, a, there's a deviation. There's a skew. One eye is doing something different than the other eye is, right? The, and, again, those things in most cases are based on problems with vestibular inputs. Almost inevitably, we see those issues not based on damage to the visual pathways, but damage to the pathways in the brainstem that mediate vestibular input. Okay, and this, this is an important thing to understand because the primary thing that people look at with evaluating the vestibular system is looking at what are called vestibulo-ocular reflexes, VORs. And the idea of a VOR really simply is that if you turn your head to the right, you activate your right inner ear, your right inner ear yells into your brainstem and says, move the eyes to the left. Because this is how you keep your eyes locked on targets. When you turn your head, the only way that you can still see the world is if your eyes are going reflexively in the other direction. Right. You, and and the, the gain of those reflexes is something that we measure very precisely in my office. We've got like two separate pieces of technology that are about video head impulse testing that allow us to, to see exactly like to the number of how these reflexes were working. Um, and that's where we start all of our therapy by recalibrating those reflexes because they're off. So is everything else. Now, if you've got a reflex that's messed up 
And so you've got one eye that's tracking differently than the other eye, or you've got both eyes tracking up, right, and down, left, when they should be going up and down, or if they're both rolled when your head goes one way, or all the stuff we talked about with that ocular tilt stuff, right? If you go and see somebody that does vision therapy, commonly what they do is put you in prisms. And prisms are basically these glasses that are going to bend the light to make it look normal, right? So you can pop a prism on. If somebody's got, say, vision where when you're looking straight ahead in one eye, is actually up and to the right. Well, the prism is going to bend the eye the same amount down into the left. So it brings your visual image from that eye back into neutral and it matches the other eye. And your brain finally gets to take a deep breath and it feels great. And it's, and your mm-hmm. vision is much less exhausting and so on and so forth. And you get a, you take a big step forward. But the problem with that is that you're not treating the problem. You're treating the consequence. Yeah. Because the problem in those situations is almost, yeah, it will, I wouldn't quite say a Band-Aid, but it's more like putting a cast on and saying yeah, you're broken arm crutch. Stick, right? Mm-hmm. At, well, at some point, you've got to take the cast off, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so people, you know, they, they get better, but they don't get fixed, right? And, and that's a, a really important thing to understand, too, because kind of the point that I always try to make with all my patients is that when somebody has a brain injury, especially when it's one that affects the brainstem, you're going to have vestibular problems, you're going to have visual problems. You're going to have proprioceptive problems. You're going to have issues with your eyes, with your inner ear. You're going to have issues with your muscles and joints. But it's not a proprioceptive injury, and it's not a vestibular injury, and it's not a visual injury. The, the primary injury in the TBI is failure to integrate vision and vestibular and proprioceptive pathways. You know what I mean? It's like the systems mm-hmm. that put everything together get scrambled. And when they're saying, and when you lose the ability to make sense out of where you are in the world because those pathways are, are saying different things, you're never going to be able to successfully rehabilitate a TBI that's that complicated by just doing vestibular therapy or by just doing vision therapy or by just getting your neck fixed or whatever else, right? I mean, you have yeah. to take a comprehensive approach that engages all of those things, not just because they're all important, but because every time you make a move with one pathway, you made a change in one of the other ones. You know what I mean? You have to think of this stuff mm-hmm. as sort of like a big three-way shoving match. And <laughs> yes. you just think, okay, so here's – actually, the, the best analogy I ever heard about this is like – it was actually a David Lee Roth thing where he was talking about trying to learn to fly a helicopter. And he said it was like balancing a marble on the end of a two-by-four. And I'm like, yeah, it actually sounds about what it's like when you're trying to really <laughs> you have all of these You have all these forces that are coming at you from different pathways. And as soon as you make a move in one direction, the thing rolls the wrong way and you have to quickly yeah. be able to adjust and affect, and, you know what I mean? Yep. So yeah, that is a great analogy. Are, yeah. So you have these three major systems that are all trying to push in different directions. And if you can't, and if you're just rehabbing one, you can actually be impairing the function of the other ones. So we see this all the time where people that, you know, they, they get a TBI and they, they spend, you know, six weeks just having somebody work on their neck. And they come in and their, their pathways are that worse than they were right after the TBI, right? And, and that's not to say that anybody was doing the wrong stuff for the neck. I mean, most, most of the time they're doing exactly the right stuff for the neck. But what the brain needs and what the neck needs are frequently completely different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, for yeah. me, they were just too worried about my whiplash, right? Like even, even the neurologist, she wanted to give me Botox in my neck. And I was like, no, you know, I want to fix it, not just, you know put some sure. toxins in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so Dr. Zielinski, we're just about out of time. Um, and this has been a fabulous conversation. I really hope um, 
people are able to really dissect it. Um, and you've, you've had a lot of technical, but you've really explained it very thoroughly. So I hope that people listening are really um, understanding this, this complex vestibular system and, you know, your whole marble on a two by four. I think that's such a perfect analogy of how, how, when you, when you, tweak one system you have to figure out where you need to tweak it in the other system it's a balancing act right um absolutely so you know do you just have quickly any final thoughts for our listeners um someone listening who is like oh wow okay um so what are what are some next steps you would tell people to take well, I mean, the the next step that I would suggest for anybody is find a, a good functional neurologist. And I always like to make sure that everybody gets that kind of an evaluation. Any, but, I mean, the reality of TBIs and concussions and things like that is that, you know, the majority of them self-resolve in, in a couple of weeks. And once you're into the post-concussion syndrome state, okay, something's going on. And yeah. you have to be able to evaluate all of it. You have to evaluate all of it if you're going to be able to successfully fix any of it. Okay, so I, I, I think that that's critically important. And then the other thing that I think is critically important for everybody to understand with a TBI is that it's never too late, okay? I mean, yes. we see patients all the time. We see people that have had – I had a patient a couple of weeks back who had, like, this perpetual um, mind-blowing nystagmus so where her eyes were just going everywhere all the time, 24-7 vertigo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we fixed her in a couple of days, Um she was 78 years old and she had her TBI when she was three. Wow. And yeah. Right. I mean, so there's circumstances like that. I mean, but, but, but why did I even have an opportunity? Because this is somebody that unfortunately had spent, you know, 75 years hacking her way through life and trying to find a solution. All right. And the people that get better from complicated TBIs are quite honestly, the people that don't give up hope. Right. And, and I Absolutely. tell everybody, listen, don't, don't settle this. There's no such thing as new normal. Okay. That's not to say that we know what your, what your new normal is going to be. I'm saying don't accept what your new normal currently is until mm-hmm. you've exhausted all of your options. And, and yeah. you know, from my perspective, functional neurology is a huge, huge part of that. Yeah. Yep. And I wouldn't be where I am today without functional neurology. So I really appreciate all you and all the other functional neurologists are doing out there. And just so our well, listeners know in the show notes, I do have your website, northwestfunctionalneurology.com and they can get in touch with you and um, you are located, you're near Portland, right? Yeah. We're like, as we go, which is like, it's like, it's Portland's Beverly Hills, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's local. It's a suburb. Excellent. Um, can I can I just well, say one more thing, Amy? You you mentioned that functional neurology was was key to getting you better. I I think while that's probably partially true, I think the fact that you didn't give up hope was the thing that was probably the most important. And yeah. and quite yeah. honestly, the community that you've built and everything that I've seen you do to try to help everybody else not give up hope and find appropriate solutions and everything else, I think what you're doing is spectacular. We need way more oh, people you. Like, like you, and I'm incredibly grateful to know that you're out there. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, and thank you for being here today. It's been a pleasure having you on. Hey, happy to help. And 
thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And just another reminder, Northwest Functional Neurology is Dr. Zielinski's website. You can find that in the show notes. And just another reminder to join Amy's TBI Tribe on Facebook. And you can follow me on Instagram at Amy Zellmer. Thank you all for listening and thank you for being part of my journey. I look forward to seeing you all again next in the next episode. Have a great day, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.